0: Welcome to the Lost Boys, the Found Fathers podcast. I'm Gabe Sullivan, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Will Haycox. We are men who have suffered the loss of a child, and through this production, we desire to offer encouragement, strength, and hope to our fellow brothers who have traveled the same journey. It's been a while, but Will, uh, welcome
1: back. Good morning. Thanks, man. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been a while. I think we're looking at like a month or so since our last recording, and I think we said the same thing uh, on our last before that. Yeah. <laughs> Busy time. Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's summer. Everybody's running around. I'm sure you're busy, too. But, uh, yeah, that's life. So, I guess the uh, important part is to keep on moving, not necessarily the time you'd like to, but I guess better late than never, right? Amen, brother. So, I think this is episode 41. That is Uh, correct. We did 40 last time, so um, I'm not super great at math, but I think 41 comes next. (laughs) Um, We kind of kicked around a few ideas, thought about it, and... We wanted to take on a subject this time that is a, is a tough subject. It's a touchy subject, I guess, for some people. Um, there is, I guess Gabe and I were talking before, you know, there's, there's with any, um, any subject or issue that's not directly spelled out in the Bible, there is always going to be questions about it one way or the other, but um, we are obviously going to tell you what we believe and why we believe it, and we hope it encourages you. So the topic today is just the simple question, is my child in heaven? And anytime somebody we love dies, um, it's easy for us to question, you know, what happened to them. We don't see them. We don't see their their soul. Uh, We don't know what happens, where they go. There's obviously from from Christians and non-Christians and all different religions, there's every theory from, you know, you're... Reincarnated, you just you just gone, and there's nothing more than your your mortal body, and that's just the end, you know. And everything goes black. You know, we believe you go to heaven when you die if you're a believer, and that you you go to an eternal separation from God if you're not a believer. And so that's you know it's a natural thing to wonder. I'm sure everybody does that. But for adults, we believe you know pretty simply as Christians that if you do have saving faith in Christ you go to heaven. If you don't have a saving faith in Christ then you don't. With younger children or with mentally disabled people or severely mentally disabled people things get much more complicated and the question we're faced with is does a person who dies before they're capable of understanding good or evil, sin, their own depravity and their need for Christ go to heaven or do they go to hell? And as we do often this podcast will tell you what we believe and then we'll get into it so uh, I guess if you disagree with us you can go ahead and discount what we're saying right now uh, we prefer that you don't and that you listen and uh, as always you can reach out to us on social media and let us know what you think and engage us in conversation here and if you have some some questions you don't think we address through this series then we will do our best to address them next time but the position of this podcast is that children or severely mentally disabled people do go to heaven when they die. And there's several reasons for this. Um, I some of them are a little more complicated, I guess, doctrinal, theological issues. But I think uh, we do a pretty good job of trying to make this simple. So, again, for something that's not clear uh, or you want us to address more, reach out to us and we'll do that. But the first reason that we believe what we believe about what happens to young children when they die is the issue of original sin versus personal guilt. And um, I'm sure if you're a Christian, you know the term original sin. You may not be as familiar with personal guilt. That's kind of just my word for it. I don't really know if there's like a—there probably is. A Some theological Theological word, word. Yeah. yeah, like something you'd learn in seminary. Uh, I'm sure there is, and I actually almost remember it right now, but I can't remember what it is, so I'm Mm -hmm. not going to say it. Um, But if you're not a Christian um, and you don't know what original sin is or personal guilt, your quick uh, theology 101 for the day, original sin is the corruption of man's nature that came about when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden and chose to disobey him at the temptation of the serpent And basically what it means is that when man was created, God created us perfect to obey Him, to praise Him, to have a relationship with Him, but our perfect nature was corrupted by our choices and our actions that we had the ability to make because God gave us free will. So now, instead of being perfect creatures in perfect harmony with God, we're unable to stand against the temptations of sin on our own, and our human nature is to rebel against typically any authority, but especially the love and authority of God. And every human's been corrupted by this sin nature, and we're unable to live up to God's standards or be good enough to go to heaven on our own. And the reason that we need Christ to save us and to to pay our punishment or to pay our uh, debt to God is because we are corrupted by original sin. So therefore when, you know, like the Bible says, you know, every thought of man and every desire of his heart is evil continually. And that may sound harsh, but if you really, I know for me, if I reflect on where my thoughts go, if I'm not dwelling on the Lord, if I'm not, you know, in communion with him and, you know, doing quiet time daily, even as a believer, you know, your thoughts trend towards things that you shouldn't be desiring, and certainly if you're not a believer, you are greedy, you're lustful, you're, you know, lazy, you're angry, there's, you know, all these things are just evidences that the world isn't perfect and you are perfect as a person. I'm going to chase a, a theological rabbit Let's do it. for a minute.
0: Come here, little <laughs> theological rabbit. Come here. Come here, Ooh. little rabbit. I've Got some kids for you. So let's say you're, you're not a, let's say you say that you are a Christian, but, or even if you're not, let's say you're a Hindu and you're like my, every thought in my mind is not, is not evil and bent on, on, you know, on displeasing God. Actually it's the opposite. Like I have cleared my mind to the point that my sole purpose is to make God happy and to please Him. And so everything I do and every motivation that I have throughout the day is to do all the right things in order to please to please God. And I and I, I know that maybe sometimes I make mistakes, but but the bent of my life is to please him now and to um and and to be in, in you know unity with him. I think in that vein, like we could be like, Oh man, well that that person is not. You know, they're, maybe they're not bent on evil. Maybe their thoughts don't go towards selfishness and greed and, and lust and rage and anger and whatever. All these thoughts. But I think that the difference there is that, or the, the rub maybe is the better term there, that if our thoughts are such that we can be good enough to please God on our own then that in itself is showing evidence of that original sin because, and even personal guilt, because we're thinking that we can achieve enough goodness to enter into a holy God's presence. And that's kind of exactly why God gave the law and exactly why God gave Jesus is because we can never do enough good, even if we think we are, because even if we're thinking, oh, I'm going to, I've cleared my mind. My mind is so good. It's it's only, you know, focused on on good things and on the Lord and on pleasing Him and on trying to do right. We're still setting ourselves up as Lord at that point and we're denying Christ's Lordship and God's Lordship if we're saying that we can be good enough to earn Him so mm-hmm. or to, to, to please Him without faith. So I think that even folks that seem like they've got it all together, and that their heart may not be bent towards sin, inevitably that itself is sin itself, because we're trying to deny God and make ourselves gods mm-hmm. by being by being as holy or
1: as righteous as He is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and, and I think too, you know, what came into my mind as you were talking about that is, let's say you have reached this place that. <clears throat> You are, whatever, 99.9% of the time you are thinking good thoughts. You're trying to please God or you're trying to reach nirvana or whatever, you know, you're saying there. Mm -hmm. And you are to this, quote, almost perfect place. I think the fact that you had to work at that, like nobody just rolls Mm -hmm. whatever comes out of the womb, Mm -hmm. acts perfect as a toddler, acts perfect as a teenager, certainly not. Yeah. Um, I know I didn't. And moves into adulthood at that 99.9% quote, sin free or whatever, you know, bad thought free place. So you have to work at it. You have to, you know, whatever it is, like ascetics and monastics and monks in the Bible, you know, like they deny the flesh and they deny the themselves you know, food or they deny themselves anything that they their eyes lust after and can reach a place of a closer relationship with the Lord and place where you aren't as tempted. But I think just the fact that you have to work at it, that you can't just be that way is is a evidence that we have a sin nature Mm -hmm. that you have to try to fight and conquer. And, you know, you you mentioned it, you know, you could be a Christian and that, I guess you go away from being a Christian because your statement was like probably for non-Christian people that think they're they're good enough or for younger Christians that can say they think they're good enough but i think that's what the christian life is about is working with the power of the spirit and not with your own power like you said mm-hmm. to get closer to being like christ and if that means you know denying yourself physical temptations that means denying yourself you know food if food's becoming an idol in your life denying yourself you know whatever pleasure it is that you shouldn't that doesn't please god That is the point of our lives. But the fact that we have to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in our own power, like you said, is an evidence that we do have that sin nature and that we're not perfect and not capable of being perfect.
0: And I think as a believer, (laughs) as a Christ follower, the difference for us is that we do these things, these good deeds, if you will, out of a gratitude for what Christ has done for us, mm-hmm. not in order to gain his favor mm-hmm. because we believe that mm-hmm. upon salvation and giving our lives over to the Lordship of Christ that we now have his, mm-hmm. um, his acceptance. Right. Mm-hmm. He's given us forgiveness. We are, we are saved. Now, the evidence of that faith is the works that we do, but we don't do those works to gain mm-hmm. God's favor he's already
1: given it to us by the work mm-hmm. of cross of the cross yeah, that's true so if we've covered that that that's what original sin is is that that it's Na your nature as a human your thoughts your desires being tainted and corrupted by sin from perfect to desiring evil continually then what is personal guilt and what's the difference there and personal guilt is just what it sounds like, like when you're, it's like personal responsibility or whatever other term you wanna use for it. Like if you if you steal something from somebody, you're personally responsible for choosing to steal that thing. And if you're wrongfully accused of stealing something, like you don't hold any personal guilt, even if somebody's saying that you did it, like you know you didn't do that, you're not in the wrong. And so you don't have personal guilt. So that should be hopefully a pretty easy thing to understand And there's a few verses here that I want to read that you know describe the interplay between original sin and personal guilt in relation to how we are judged by God and how we are held guilty or not guilty and basically what I want to say here is that God doesn't judge us for being corrupted by sin the same meaning he doesn't judge us for original sin And for having the inability to live up to his standards, but he does judge us for the acts we commit in our rebellion toward him, for the not just the physical act of Gabe, if I stand up and punch you, but for like sitting here and ruminating on like, can't believe Gabe did that to me last week. I really want to just hit him in the face. Like Jesus talks about, you know, a person who has evil thoughts, you know, and anger, uh, angry thoughts towards someone has committed murder towards them in his heart and so like when I say act here I'm saying like strong Mental, desires physical, as well as yeah like, yeah. yeah. so uh, that's what God holds us guilty for and here's my evidence of that first is Romans 2 6-11 through it says he which is God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality He will give eternal life But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil and Colossians 3 23 through 25 says whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality so there's several other verses that you know I look this up and and just you know do a study on verses about punishment or verses about guilt there's several things you know that say the wicked man will be paid for his wickedness and so I think the the idea here is that we're not guilty of sin and we're not we're not incapable of going to heaven because we are corrupted by original sin but we are incapable of going to heaven because being unable to live up to God's standard we do things that don't live up to God's standard and so he punishes us for those thoughts and actions like I said <laughs> that directly oppose him and his law. And that's, you know, when you're, whatever, when your child is, I think I listened to, was it episode like 35 or 36 this week? And you told the story of when one of your sons wanted a a candy bar or something. And you were like, no son, you can't have a candy bar. You haven't eaten dinner yet. And he gets mad at you and he's like, dad, I can't believe that you wouldn't give me this. Like I want to go live on the streets and get away from you. And so, like, in his little heart right there, that's, like, a sinful wrong action that, like, he wanted that candy bar enough to hurt you as dad. He wanted that enough to, like, rebel against your authority and strike out and go. And so, like, using that as a metaphor for us as adults, we aren't guilty because we want that candy bar. We're guilty because we want that candy bar enough to send for it Mm. and to strike out, to hurt somebody, to take it, to sit there and just dwell and become so bitter and so angry and so filled with hate because we don't have that candy bar, whether that candy bar is a promotion or money or sex with somebody that we're not married to or, you know, whatever it is, like that that quote candy bar isn't the issue. The temptation for it isn't the issue, but dwelling on it and making it the priority in your life is or punished for. So all of this point here, original sin versus personal guilt, suggests that if a person were to die before they were capable of understanding that there is a God or capable of knowing the law of God that he's written on our hearts, which is our conscience, they would not be held guilty of committing sin by God, even though they do possess the sin nature that everyone possesses. So I've got one more, probably got what, 17 minutes in. I got another Uh, reason here another uh, reason to believe what we believe about why children are in heaven and that is the story of king david's son with bathsheba and uh this you know gabe told me uh, as i want to do i put like half a page of uh (laughs) verses on here and like want to read the whole passage and it's worthy of reading it's worthy (laughs) of
0: reading so it is second samuel 12 15 yeah. through 23, but Will's gonna,
1: yeah, uh, like I'll summarize, summarize a little it. Bit. That's the word. There we so, go. So, yeah, so, um, thank Gabe if you don't want to sit here and listen to me quote half a chapter, but you should read episode. it if you're listening. You should definitely, you should definitely read, read this, it's a great but, story. Yeah, if you're not not aware of what happens, long story short, King David, there's the whole story in that chapter that. Uh, it's a time for kings to go out to war, and David's being lazy or whatever it is, so he doesn't want to go out to war. He sits around at home. The men are at war. He's at his house in his palace, and he looks out. He sees a woman bathing on a roof. He lusts after her. He sends his guards to go and get her, and he has sex with her, and she's a married woman. turns out she's married to a guy named Uriah, who was... I remember correctly I'm pretty sure he's one of David's mighty men that are uh, actually like 30 men who came to him when he was at his lowest and fought with him and stood with him and like were his closest friends and confidants and soldiers so that's you know it's kind of a crappy thing on David to do anyway but so David then goes forward and gives the orders to Joab like you know send Uriah out to the front of the battle and then everybody else pull back let Uriah get killed because Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife when David brought him back so that uh, he could think that the child is is his rather than David's so all that's happened Uriah is killed David takes Bathsheba to be his wife at that point officially and then Nathan came to David and was like dude this is really screwed up God's gonna punish you for what you did And this is the story of the punishment Is that that son that David had with Bathsheba dies And so it talks about uh, the child was sick It says David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground The elders came to him to try to get him to stand up And he wouldn't on the seventh day the child died And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead For they said behold while the child was yet alive We spoke to him and he did not listen to us how can we say to him, the child is dead? But then David heard the servants whispering, and he asked him, is the child dead? And they said, yes. And then David arose, this is verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. When he asked, they set food before him and he ate. His servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food which was the opposite of the custom at that time. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So there's a lot of things we can take from this. Um, You know, David praying, fasting, mourning while the child is sick. And then when the child dies, he cleans up, he praises God. Like I said, that's the opposite of the culture at the time, which was, you know, if somebody is sick and mourn, you don't mourn over them while they're still alive. You would do everything you can to help them, to get them better. I don't know if it's quite accurate to say like you live your normal life, but when someone dies, that's when you go into fasting and mourning and you grieve over them. And David kind of flipped that on its head. And I think the, what we learn from this is that when we're suffering, our children are sick, you know, whatever it is, we've lost a job, we're having trouble in our marriage. The proper response there is to seek God and do everything we can to focus our lives and our hearts on Him. He wants us to seek Him. Obviously, we've talked before about how He's our source of comfort and hope, so we need to go to Him and He's our refuge. And then once the thing that we're asking for is no longer humanly possible, like our suffering, our time of suffering is over, we're going through a divorce and it's finalized, or our child or a loved one dies, then David models the proper response there to return to God in our pain, but to praise him for his goodness. And specifically what we're talking about in the case of this death of of David's child, we can have hope and confidence that our child is not lost, but is in heaven. And, you know, there's, there's always that tension, I think we've talked about before in the podcast, between like not everything in the Bible is telling you what you should do and there's that difference between like prescriptive which is like a prescription that's telling you like go home and take this like go home and do this and description that's just saying like this is what happened like we're not told it's not prescriptive for us to go into our quote promised land and kill all the people there like obviously we know as people living in 2022 God's not telling us to we live here in South Carolina. We're not supposed to go to Georgia and kill everybody in Georgia because Georgia's our promised land. Like that's that would obviously be a poor, out of context way to read the Bible. But this particular passage here is descriptive, telling us what's going on. But this end part here, like the last three or four verses, is sort of a prescriptive, descriptive kind of back and forth. I think you would you would agree, Gabe, that you know the way we just talked about how David responds to the Lord in his grief and then in the the grief after the child dies and the fact that he says, you know, man that's so close to the Lord even though he is a sinner, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. That confidence that he has that his son is in a place where he will go to him is something that we can take for ourselves and we can also believe that and know if a man that knew the Lord so well and was so close to the Lord, you know, at at times when he wasn't mired in sin, had that confidence that he lost his son. He's someone that feels feelings very strongly, if you know anything about David. You know, he was, when his other son, Absalom, tries to take over the kingdom... He's rebelling against him, kills a lot of his men, actually did basically take over the kingdom from him. And then at the end, Absalom is killed and David grieves over Absalom more than he rejoices over having the kingdom back to the point where even his advisors come to him and like, David, if you're going to act like all your men fought for you, men died for you to get your kingdom back and you are grieving over this enemy of ours, who's your son, more than you're celebrating. And like you've turned our victory into mourning If you're not going to go out there and tell Ben that you're thankful and act like we actually won something, you're going to lose all Israel because nobody's going to want to serve a king who grieves the enemy. So if he is a man who feels that strongly and is that emotional of a person, it, it would seem kind of weird for him to just be able to flip that switch and serve God, worship, praise God, Unless he had incredible confidence that this is right here in verse twenty three, that now my son is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me.
0: Mm, that's so true, man. And, and and we're not saying that once you lose your child, you shouldn't grieve. Like we're mm. not saying that at all. Mm. Like this podcast is to help you in your grief, right? That's why we're do. One of the reasons we're doing this. But what we are saying is that there. This is the passage that we can gain that <clears throat> confidence that our little ones. When they go on before us, they are in heaven with the Lord, and this passage is clear of that because it wouldn't be in the Bible if it were, if it were not <clears throat> the truth. And so you can have confidence in that, and hopefully that gives you a little bit of a boost to, as Will said, you know, then, uh, you know, go on with your life, returning back to the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. not coming to the Lord in anger of God. Why did you take my kid and? why did you let them die and this and that but thank you God that you now hold my child even though I miss them terribly I wish they were still here Uh, I'm mourning their loss and we're super sad about that and the whole thing but you know we can have confidence in the Lord that he has that child now and that they're never going to suffer again they're never going to experience pain hurt loss all the things that you're experiencing right now that child will never experience that because they are with the present in the presence of the Lord. And in His goodness forever, and that will hopefully
1: give you confidence. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're getting close to thirty minutes here, so we're yeah, gonna we'll wrap, wrap this up this episode. Up. Sure, we'll, man. Uh, that's cool. Carry on to the next one.
0: Yeah, so episode forty-two, we'll be continuing on with this, uh, some more discussion on this, but hopefully that gives you a great confidence knowing where your child is right now. That they're in heaven, they're in the presence of the Lord, and that is a good thing. And we want to thank you for joining us today. Make sure that you follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also look at uh, look for my books on Amazon. I have Thou Will Be Done on there. That's put in Thou Will Be Done with a question mark. Search my name, Gabriel O'Sullivan. And then my newest book, Every Little Thing, Six Small Steps to Perfect Peace. That can be found on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, or on uh, Apple Books. Again, thank you for joining us today. Let's not be lost. Let's be found in him.